You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective. All right, let's go. Samuel Robotham held more than his fair share of controversial opinions. He stumbled upon his first in 1838. While Karl Marx was still writing fiction and reading Hegel, Robotham hitched his wagon to a farmer named William Hodson who was attempting to build a socialist utopia in the fens of England. Since the very beginning of the 19th century, textile manufacturer Robert Owen had been noodling with ways to form a better, more equitable society, and had put those ideas into practice, first at a mill he owned southeast of Glasgow, then through writings and speeches, and finally with the establishment of several experimental utopian communities. He came to Harmony, Indiana in 1825, Harmony, Indiana had also been settled as an experimental utopia by German immigrant George Rapp. It had lasted almost a full decade, but had fallen apart just in time for Robert Owen to purchase the town, rename it New Harmony, and begin afresh. Anyone was welcome in New Harmony, which led to a mix Owen's son described as a heterogeneous collection of radicals, enthusiastic devotees to principle, honest latitudinarians, and lazy theorists, with a sprinkling of unprincipled sharpeners thrown in. What could go wrong? Flash forward about a year, and the whole thing was falling apart. Various splinter groups were forming and warring, the property was in six figures worth of 19th century debt, and the New Harmony Settlement decided to replace their socialist utopia with individual anarchism. Which, and you're not going to believe this, also didn't work out very well. But Owen didn't give up on his ideas. And neither did his acolytes. Between them, they created more than 20 proto-utopias, all of which fell in short order to infighting, opportunism, disorganization, and poverty. Robert Owen had talked a very big game about creating a new society where human nature itself was changed for the better, where all people had a place and were cared for. But by 1838... He and the rest of the Owenites were preaching an addendum to those who would try to walk the path he had. Maybe temper your expectations a little bit. William Hodson bet the other way. The Manea colony he began building in 1838 was the most bold and severe of any that had been attempted before. All people were to be constantly uniformed, children to be raised in public trust, every element of community members' lives micromanaged down to the fingernail. In a few months, the Manaeans and the Owenites had a loud and public falling out. 
Some of the Owenites who had joined the Manea colony claimed that Hodson's people had taken their possessions and tools never to return them and that they had been given no provisions or credits their whole time there. The Hodsonians fired back that the Owenites were layabouts who spent their time drinking and carousing with prostitutes and enjoined the regularly moral members of their company to take part in unspeakable midnight orgies. Whichever claim was true, it didn't speak well to the health of the new utopia. Soon the colony took on a true war footing, arming guards and threatening any outsiders who might come along. They threatened one another, too, and began to cast more and more members out of their ranks for drinking, for swearing, for prostituting, for thieving. They were even excommunicated for having the gall to ply a trade besides basic subsistence farming, which was what Hodson thought all the colonists should be engaged in. But of all the people the Manaeans excommunicated, one of them stood out. Samuel Raubotham. Raubotham had been secretary of the community, in charge of their public statements and many parts of daily life. He had helped secure the Fenland the community lived on, drafted the legal documents with the government of Cambridgeshire, and secured funding with philanthropists and other donors. He was, in short, a true believer in the Menaean commune. But around the time things were starting to spiral the drain, he was also becoming a true believer in another thing. His second unpopular opinion. The eastern boundary of the commune was the Bedford River, an artificial drainage canal that cuts north to south through the Fen. In the summer of 1838, Raubotham had a boat row slowly down that river away from him, with a flag on the bow at a height of three feet above water level. From his position wading in the water, Raubotham watched as the boat sauntered away and reported that when the boat reached the Wellney Bridge, six miles distant, he could still see the flag. From this, Raubotham concluded that the earth was flat and became the father of the modern flat earther movement. This may sound familiar since we talked about Samuel Raubotham, or Parallax, as he preferred to be called, a while back in our episode Reductio Ad Absurdum. Raubotham's belief in a flat earth was purportedly formed by his Bedford level experiment, but all indications suggest that it was religion that really planted the seed. Parallax began touring the countryside arguing his point mainly on biblical grounds, with just a tiny bit of Bedford River for color. His model of the Earth couldn't explain a lot of things, like why ships disappeared over the horizon from the bottom up, or why people at different longitudes saw different stars, or why there was day and night, but that hardly slowed him down, and he argued with such fervor and power that in spite of his position's myriad and gaping deficiencies, he won new believers everywhere he went. Those concerned by this trend would go to the meetings and attempt publicly to shred his points, but on his own turf, in front of his own crowds, they had very limited success. Nobody could even slightly slow Parallax's meteoric rise. He published books, pamphlets, and handbills. He attracted adherents who spread his ideas around England and beyond, to France and the Americas. Finally, in 1864, after more than 20 years of proselytizing, Richard A. Proctor devised a plan to put an end to Samuel Parallax Raubotham's flat earth march across the globe. Proctor was an astronomer who had graduated from Cambridge just four years earlier. Soon after his face-off with Raubotham, he would make surveys of Saturn, one of the first telescope-aided maps of Mars, and write a good number of popular science books of various degrees of quality, including an entry into the very popular late 1800s hobby of ascribing magical powers to the dimensions of the Great Pyramid of Giza. First, though, he was able to convince Parallax to meet him in Plymouth with a telescope and to look through it to the south over the ocean, and at the Eddie Stone Lighthouse. 
This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. The goal of a lighthouse is to be avoided. It's supposed to repel you. Yet over the last few years of making this show, I have beat on, a boat against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the Eddystone Lighthouse. So grab an oar, because by mildly popular demand, this time I'm bringing you with me. Today's episode, On the Rocks. What Richard Proctor knew that day in Plymouth was that if you stood on the Plymouth Hoe, a grassy public knoll on the south end of town, and looked out through a telescope, you could see the Eddystone Lighthouse, 14 miles out into the sea. But only the light on top. The rest of the tower was hidden behind the curvature of the Earth, so that the light, more than 50 feet in the air, appeared to just rest atop the waves. It was obvious, incontrovertible, demonstrable proof that the Earth is round and Parallax had agreed to fall right into the trap. On the appointed day, Proctor assembled some number of telescopes and some number of witnesses, all pointed south, and all agreeing that Proctor's claim was true. Anyone could see, plain as day, that the light was dropping behind the curve. What must Samuel Parallax Raubotham have been thinking as more and more people signed on to Proctor's view, literally? He'd just published a book, Zetaic Astronomy, the Earth Not a Globe. He had a public campaign aimed at Sir George Biddle Airy, the Astronomer Royal, daring him or anyone else to disprove his ironclad truth that the Earth was flat. And now, he was minutes away from it all falling apart. Did he consider running away? Or making an excuse? Perhaps he could have walked up and pretended to trip, knocking over and breaking the telescope before he had a chance to look through it. Not good ideas, I'll admit, but what other strategy did Parallax have available? A few minutes later, he stepped up to the telescope and unveiled it. There it is, Richard Proctor might have said. Do you see the lantern sitting on the water with the tower submerged behind the horizon? And Samuel Raubotham replied, brilliantly, no. No, he said. He didn't see the lantern low upon the sea. He said, instead, that he saw the whole tower, bottom to top, just the way God, maker of this great flat earth, intended. Yes, me too, said one of his acolytes. And another. And another. Parallax and his followers walked away even more vocally convinced than when they had arrived, and the observers and reporters Proctor had assembled at the scene left writing not about nonsensical pseudoscience finally being given its walking papers, but about a controversy. Some had said that the tower fell behind the horizon. Others said it did not. Some said that it was plain to see the world was round. Others that it was plainly plainer. What could the media do but teach the controversy? Of course, anyone could easily set up their own looking glass on the Plymouth Hoe and immediately see that Proctor was right, but they didn't. And so Proctor's seemingly foolproof plan to put flat eartherism to bed badly backfired because he had failed to anticipate that his opponent was working in bad faith. And I don't think there's anything we can learn from that story, so let's instead refocus our own lens on the lighthouse. If you listened to part two of How to Solve a Murder, you already know a few things about the tower Proctor and Parallax were staring at. It's known specifically as Smeaton's Tower, named for John Smeaton, the civil engineer who concocted the term civil engineer and who built the lighthouse. 
Smeaton's lighthouse is one of the most impressive engineering feats of all time. Not only did he rediscover hydraulic lime, or concrete, to build it, and not only did he invent that famous oak tree-like lighthouse shape, but he also developed the use of stone dovetail joints to secure the 59-foot-tall stone tower into the partially submerged Eddystone Rocks, 14 miles out into the open ocean. Smeaton began building the lighthouse in 1756, and it was completed in less than three years. Over a hundred years later, around the same time Samuel Raubotham was pretending he could see the whole thing from shore, surveyors noticed a problem. Smeaton's tower had lasted more than a century and showed little signs of failing. It was outlasting the waves themselves. Unfortunately, it was also outlasting the rocks it was built on. So, that presented a problem, huh? Worse still, the base of Smeaton's tower was so sturdy that nobody could figure out how to take it apart, even as the rocks it was pinioned to were rapidly eroding. Trinity House, the semi-governmental corporation in charge of English lighthouses, began futzing with the issue, and eventually decided that maybe they should just blow the whole thing up. Not just Smeaton's tower, but the entirety of the Eddystone rocks the tower was built to mark. It was the 1860s, and Alfred Nobel had just invented dynamite, and folks were just gaga for the stuff. When you have a hammer, every problem looks like a nail, but when you've got enough sticks of clay-stabilized nitroglycerin, everything actually is explodable. The partially submerged Eddystone rocks had been sinking ships for hundreds of years. They were so treacherous that they'd become the site of the first ever open ocean lighthouse, and then the second, and then the third. Now, instead of building a fourth... Trinity House weighed this flashier solution. As it turns out, the Eddystone Rocks are the habitat of several rare species, including an adorably ugly little bottom feeder named the Stevens Goby. So we're lucky that Trinity House eventually concluded that demolishing the entire one-mile square area with high explosives was somewhat impractical. Instead, they had to build a fourth lighthouse after all, the still-standing Douglas Lighthouse. The Douglas Lighthouse is a marvel of engineering all its own, but one that doesn't come with much of a story, so instead of talking about it, we're going to keep our eyes trained on Smeaton's tower. Once it was decided that Douglas Lighthouse would need to be built, it was tacitly assumed that Smeaton's would be demolished. But it was such a beloved landmark that the people of Plymouth wouldn't have it. They insisted that Smeaton's tower be disassembled, brick by brick, in the middle of the rocky ocean, and then hauled back to Plymouth to be rebuilt as a monument. At ludicrous cost and risk, so much so that they may well have just dynamited the reef after all, this was done. The tower was taken apart as Douglas Tower was built in 1877. Smeaton's lighthouse was then rebuilt on Plymouth Hoe, precisely where Proctor and Parallax had their dueling telescope descriptions. But when the builders got to the bottom of Smeaton's tower, the part that was latched to the eroding rocks, they found it was so tightly constructed that they could not break it up and so they left it there, next to the new Douglas Lighthouse. The Douglas Lighthouse is still there today, and so is the base of Smeaton's Tower. And so is the rest of Smeaton's Tower at Plymouth Hoe, which means that on a clear day, you can climb up to the top of Smeaton's Lighthouse and from it gaze out to the bottom of Smeaton's Lighthouse, 14 miles away. That you're doing it from the place Richard Proctor failed to stop the modern-day Flat Earth movement is just icing on the cake. You beginning to see why I like this thing? Well, just you wait. 
Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As I mentioned, Smeaton's wasn't the first Eddie Stone Lighthouse. It was the third, or fourth, depending on how you count them. And while this story would be a lot easier to tell linearly, like a normal person would, I really want to end at the beginning for a reason that will eventually become clear, knock on wood. So let's take this backwards. Douglas's still-standing lighthouse replaced Smeaton's in 1877, and Smeaton's was completed in 1759. Before that was Rudyard's lighthouse, which was built in 1709 and stood until 1755. That left four years during which there was no lighthouse on the Eddystone Rocks. And those four years illustrated for the third time why you needed one. The Eddystone Rocks, 14 miles south of Plymouth, are in the middle of the otherwise open waters of the English Channel, right smack dab in the shipping lanes between England and France. Without something marking them, ships tended to slam right into the jutting stones and sink, over and over again through the centuries. And that's what happened for those four years, wreck after wreck, until Smeaton was hired to build his tower. The reason there was no lighthouse for those years is the interesting part, and that reason begins with the second Eddystone Lighthouse, known as Rudyard's Lighthouse, after its builder, John Rudyard. Just why and how John Rudyard ended up building his version of the Eddystone Lighthouse is difficult to say. The rights to the Eddystones were held by Captain John Lovett, who purchased a lease from Parliament on the terms that he would collect tolls from passing ships when the lighthouse was completed. He turned, apparently, to Rudyard to get the job done, even though Rudyard was a silk merchant and real estate holder with no obvious experience in building open-water lighthouses. In fairness, though, nobody had any experience in building open-water lighthouses. There'd only ever been one before the first Eddystone Lighthouse, and its builder was missing and presumed dead. So, I guess why not go with the silk seller? Rudyard's 69-foot-tall lighthouse was made out of wooden planks, caulked like traditional ocean-going sailing ships were, and, and this is the critical part, topped with a wooden roof buttressed with lead. The light at the top was produced by two dozen candles, which were first lit on July 28, 1708. That means it made it a good 50 years, which is a lot better than you could say for the first lighthouse, but on December 2, 1755, the top of Rudyard's lighthouse caught fire. Whether this was due to the candles or the heat of the chimney from the living quarters stove is debatable and debated. What's known is that around 2 a.m., one of the three lighthouse keepers, Henry Hall, noticed that the roof was on fire. Henry Hall was all alone and immediately started trying to throw buckets of water up onto the fire. 
Soon he was joined by the other two keepers, but a fat lot of good it did, since the roof was 12 feet above the platform. Eventually, the three men had to retreat and took cover on the exposed rocks while the tower continued to burn through the night. As you might hope would happen with a lighthouse fire, the burning tower was spotted from far away, and around 10 in the morning, a passing boat came by to find the three men clasping to the rocks. The sailors threw ropes to each man in turn, who then tied them around their waists and were pulled through the waters to safety. The lighthouse continued to burn, unabated, for nearly a week. Henry Hall and the other keepers were then brought to Plymouth, where they were seen to by a surgeon named Edmund Spry. According to Spry, Hall was 94 years old and suffering from some rather serious burns, especially about his head, shoulders, and chest. But Hall's chief complaint, which he made through a frighteningly hoarse voice, was with his stomach. He told Dr. Spry that when he was trying to throw buckets of water up onto the burning roof, a mass of molten lead had fallen straight into his mouth, where he reflexively swallowed it. Spry assured Hall he was wrong, that it was impossible. He could have drank molten lead and lived. Hall insisted again and again that he could feel the lead in his stomach, both to Spry and his visitors, but the doctor continued to talk down Hall's story. Spry reasonably suspected that Hall had been stunted by the trauma of the fire, which, along with his advanced age, had contributed to his mistaking having inhaled burning hot air into having ingested liquid metal. As the days went by, Spry seemed to be right. Hall began to recover. He took food, drink, and medicine. His voice started to return, which he used to continue to say he had glugged lead during the fire. After about a week, his recovery stalled, and then reversed. Twelve days after the fire, he had stopped drinking, eating, and talking, and he was taken by a series of violent seizures. And then he died. Dr. Spry conducted an autopsy the next day, December 9, 1755. He began by noting the burns that covered the left side of Hall's body, down past his intercostals, all the way up to his eye. The burns traveled around his lips and mouth, and traveled down his diaphragm and into the top of his stomach. At the bottom, Spry found and removed a seven and a half ounce kidney bean shaped lump of lead. Understandably astonished, maybe humbled, Dr. Spry wrote to the Royal Society explaining the case. But the Royal Society was as skeptical of Spry's story as Spry had initially been of Hall's. George Parker, the second Earl of Macclesfield, was an accomplished astronomer who was chiefly responsible for changing the country over from the Julian to the Gregorian calendar five years earlier, in 1750. For this, he was considerably unpopular with the public, who said he had robbed them of 11 days of life a year. And that is how they get you. Anyway, George Parker was president of the Royal Society and wrote back to Edmund Spry to tell him that his tale was preposterous. Anyone who swallowed the purported amount of molten lead would have died immediately. Spry understood where Parker was coming from. He'd thought the same thing until he'd cut open Hall's stomach. But he wasn't ready to just let the mistake stand. A few weeks later, on January 30th, 1756, Dr. Edmund Spry wrote a long and fairly disturbing reply. Uh, I'm going to read a slightly abridged version. So if you can't stomach, and that's a poor choice of words, if you don't have a, a constitution for hearing about the suffering of animals, you might want to scrub forward until you can no longer hear this jaunty tune. The cheerfulness of which I hope will make the contents of the letter less unsettling. 
to the Right Honorable George Earl of Macclesfield, President of the Royal Society. Plymouth, January 30th, 1756. My Lord, as the late case I took the liberty of troubling your lordship with was so very singular as to make it by some gentlemen greatly doubted on account of their imagining that the degree of heat in melted lead was too great to be borne in the stomach without immediate death, or at least more sudden than happened in this case, I herein can not only convince your lordship of its fact, by my own and, if requisite, the oaths of others, but also by the following experiments, which, from similarity of circumstances, must not only render that probable, but, in the most convincing manner, the absolute possibility of my absertion. I extracted, in three pieces, from the stomach of a small dog, six drams, one scruple of lead, which I had poured down his throat the day before. The dog had nothing to eat or drink after, nor for twenty-four hours before the experiment, when, being very brisk, I killed him. I also took from the stomach of a large dog in several pieces, six ounces and two drams of lead three days after thrown in. The pharynx and cardiac orifice of the stomach were a little inflamed and excoriated, but the esophagus and stomach seemed in no manner affected. I gave this dog a half pint of milk just before I poured down the lead, very soon after which also he ate thereof freely, as if nothing ailed him, which he daily continued to do, being very lively at the time I killed him. From the crop of a full-grown fowl, I, in company with Dr. Huxham, FRS, extracted of lead one solid piece, weighing two ounces and a half, together with nine other small portions weighing half an ounce, which lead was thrown down the fowl's throat 25 hours before. The fowl was kept without meat for 24 hours before and after the experiment, eating, being very lively just before we gilled him, dry barley as fast and with nigh if not quite the same ease as before. The barley was partly in the esophagus, though mostly in the craw, which was almost full with the lead. I took two ounces one scruple from the crop of another fowl three days after the experiment, which fowl was very brisk to the last. At present, I have a dog with lead in his stomach, which I intend to keep to prove how long he may live. My lord, your lordship may depend on it, that so far from my asserting anything in the least degree uncertain that, as I always have, I always shall act with so much circumspection and integrity, especially in these tender points where my character is at stake, as to be able easily to prove what I may assert, as in the present case, so very extraordinary that scarce any of the faculty, unless particularly acquainted with me, would give credit to till I demonstrated it by the above experience, which, I doubt not in the least, will be sufficiently satisfactory to your lordship and to the honorable society to serve which venerable body as much as lies in my power will at all times give the greatest pleasure to my lord, your lordship's most obedient and most humble servant, Edmund Spry. You know, I think that actually the music made it worse somehow. If you go looking into the story of Mr. Henry Hall and Dr. Edmund Spry for yourself, you're bound to run across a number of sources claiming that this letter represented the first documented scientific experiments with live animals in British history. But don't you believe it for a second. In 1756, vivisection was disturbingly common and much debated. In England, the practice of animal experimentation went back at least to Robert Boyle, who in the 1660s had a hypothesis that breathing depended upon the same gases as fire did. Boyle had shown that fire was extinguished in a vacuum, so he went about showing that animals were, too. Boyle's experiments would go on to be repeated as entertainment throughout Europe, with people lining up to watch birds suffocating in glass cages as the air was pumped out. But Boyle, at least, had sacrificed his subjects for an important piece of knowledge. If Edmund Spry was a pioneer in any respect, 
it is that he became the first doctor to experiment on animals purely for the sake of his own wounded pride. And I gotta tell ya, it's about now that I'm regretting telling this story in reverse, because I simply do not know how to transition backwards from here. But it's gotta happen! So, uh, let me rock this thing back and forth a couple times. In a final gambit to convince the society, Spry donated the hunk of lead he removed from Henry Hall to the National Museum of Scotland, where it is still on display today. Proof positive that he was a part of the second strangest Eddystone Lighthouse story. Eh? Huh? How about that? Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Things done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. The Constant is brought to you by Indeed. It's 2021. If you're looking for someone to build your offshore lighthouse, you don't have to shrug and choose whatever silk seller happens by your window, because you've got Indeed. Indeed Indeed.com is the hiring site that helps you find quality candidates with Indeed Instant Match. Indeed searches through the millions of resumes in their database to help show you great candidates instantly, so you can do the part you really need faster, meeting and hiring great people. Unlike some hiring sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility, delivering a quality shortlist faster. With Indeed, there are no long-term contracts. You can pause your account at any time, and you only pay for what you need. With Instant Match, you see a great list of candidates with zero wait. Indeed delivers four times more hires than all other job sites combined, and one and a half more hires than internal referrals, according to Talent Nest. Want your quality shortlist fast? You need Indeed. Right now, our listeners get a free $75 credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash The Constant. This is Indeed's best offer available anywhere. Get a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash The Constant. That's Indeed.com slash The Constant. One word. Offer valid through March 31st. Terms and conditions may apply. What interferes with your happiness? Is something preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp is here for you. They assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist, allowing you to start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line or self-help. It's professional counseling in a safe, private, convenient online environment. Send a message to your counselor anytime and receive timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. 
It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. BetterHelp has licensed professional counselors specializing in depression, trauma, relationships, grief, and much more. And since it's available worldwide, you can find the particular expertise you need without limiting yourself to the counselors located near you. Anything you share is confidential. BetterHelp is convenient, professional, and affordable. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash the constant. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash the constant. The first and greatest story of the Eddystone Lighthouse is also the story of Henry Winstanley of Saffron Walden. Born in 1644, Henry Winstanley was from a good family. His uncle William Winstanley, for instance, was a writer and poet credited with almost single-handedly inventing the restored celebration of Christmas in England after Oliver Cromwell and his Puritans banned the holiday. Henry's father, Henry Winstanley Sr., was steward to the Earl of Suffolk, James Howard. Henry Sr. oversaw Howard's palace, Audley End House, and after he completed grammar school, Henry Jr. also went to work at Audley End as the secretary to the Earl. And that might have been Henry's whole life, working for the Earl at Audley End and eventually taking over the stewardship from his father. Except that there was a race course in Newmarket, not far from Audley End, and King Charles II liked going there to bet on the horses with his brother, future King James II. Unfortunately for Charles, but more unfortunately for the Earl of Suffolk, the king didn't have any properties to stay at that were sufficiently close to the racetrack. So, he bought Audley End House and kicked James Howard out in 1666. For Henry Winstanley, this was a surprising windfall. Not that it wouldn't have been fine to be a steward of an earl, but now he was in line to be clerk of the works at one of the king's palaces. With that bright future waiting in the wings, Henry Winstanley embarked upon a wild out sewing grand tour of the continent where he learned engraving, drawing, architecture, and seemingly mechanics. I mean, he must have learned them somewhere. When Winstanley returned from Europe four years later, he took over the works and quickly expressed everything he'd learned back in France and Italy and Germany. He spent a full decade making meticulous engravings of every nook and cranny at Audley End House, from aerial views to fine detail close-ups. Sounds boring, even by 17th century English standards, but it was also at this time that Winstanley started to show his weird streak. In the corners of Audley End House, he began building things. What kinds of things? It's hard to say exactly. There's no written record of the specifics of his Audley End inventions, at least none that I've found. We've got plenty of examples of stuff he made elsewhere, though, and they definitely give us a glimpse into the wild life and reputation of Henry Winstanley. In 1683, he married Elizabeth Winstanley, and they bought a house in Littlebury, which they named Littlebury House for some reason. At Littlebury House, Henry started building, well, again, things for Elizabeth. Some of them were cute, like a clockwork duck that could swim and walk. Some of them were beautiful, like a slow-rolling stream he had water-wheeled through the garden. Some of them were useful, like a mechanical butler, which was, depending very heavily upon your definition, 
the first robot ever built in Britain. There were things that ranged from funny to fucked up, like the trick chairs. Sit in one, and it tipped over, dumping you into the cellar. Sit in another, and it rolled out the window and into the garden. Sit in the third, and latches snapped out, locking you in until someone came to your rescue. That's not all. There were funhouse mirrors, spinning lanterns, a ghost that appeared if anyone slipped their feet into Henry's slippers, and more and more and more. Henry and Elizabeth Winstanley may have called their place Littlebury House, but soon it gained a different name. The House of Wonders. Henry installed a turnstile and charged a small price for admission. Visitors came from all around. The House of Wonders was just an entr'acte. In 1696, Henry and Elizabeth began work on a space in Piccadilly, London, the Mathematical Water Theatre. Marked by a lighted, spinning windmill at its top, the Mathematical Water Theatre was a spectacle unlike anyone had ever seen before. The windmill wasn't just decorative, it pumped thousands of gallons into the theatre from the nearby Tyburn Stream for use in the performances. Before the show even began, the audiences arrived to find a truly opulent theater. The candles were all held in glass holders, a staggeringly expensive thing to do in 1696. The ironwork was done by Jean Tijoux, the finest living artisan in all Europe at the time, whose intricate metal filigrees still adorn St. Paul's Cathedral and Kensington Palace. The woodwork was done by Grinling Gibbons, the finest living woodworker in all Europe at the time, whose intricate lime garlands still adorn St. Paul's Cathedral and Kensington Palace. No, not Kensington Palace, I just couldn't resist the symmetry. But he did do the wood in some little place called Windsor Castle? There were 22 original paintings, including some by Louis Laguerre, one of the finest decorative and history painters of the era, who was adored in England because he was a Frenchman who was happy to paint military scenes of the British beating Louis XIV. Historian Alison Barnes has pieced together the actual show portion of the show. The performance would begin with a series of sexy mythological vignettes, Venus and Mars, satyrs chasing nymphs, Neptune with a cadre of mermaids, etc. They weren't just TNA, though. These scenes were full of special effects. Characters would transform from one person to another, or into bouquets or flowers. Venus carried a large heart that would light on fire when love was found. Then the whole stage would transform before the audience's eyes into a series of effects-laden landscapes, sea battles, and holiday celebrations. Waves would crash, cannons would boom, fields of wheat would grow from seed to harvest. And then came my favorite part, the intermission. Which doesn't need further explanation. Intermission is always my favorite part. There's drinks, there is food, there is public bathroom. What could be better? But wait, there's more. During intermission at the Mathematical Water Theater, the drinks came from the Magic Barrel, which poured beer, tea, wine, coffee, milk, hot chocolate, all from the same spigot on demand. It also served something called spa water, which, no thank you. Food was served on trays that flew through the air by pulley or were carried by waitstaff dressed as cupids, who flew through the air by pulley. When the show came back, it was fireworks time. Flying metal dragons spit fireballs, flowers bloomed and burst into flames, unicorns and eagles and mermaids and more. For the penultimate and most popular act, out came when Stanley's robot duck again. At the Mathematical Water Theater, the duck didn't just swim, it walked and even made its way to a nest at which it laid eggs. 
embossed with images of flowers, the stars, the sun, and the moon, which were given out to audience members. Finally, for the finale, jets of water flew across the theater from one spot to another. They cascaded into waterfalls and fountains and finally shot out from the still-burning candles in those glass holders. It was a sensation. The Winn Stanley's Mathematical Water Theater wasn't just the start of those fun fountains at Disney World, it was the direct inspiration for John Weaver, who took the acts he saw there and turned them into two forms that still exist today, pantomime and ballet. Yeah, you heard me. If you happened to be in London when it opened on June 6, 1696, you had to see the Mathematical Water Theater. I mean, if you inexplicably find yourself in London when it opened on June 6, 1696, you have to see the Mathematical Water Theater. But you know who wasn't there? Henry Wynne Stanley. Because on June 6, 1696, Henry Wynne Stanley was 14 miles off the coast of Plymouth on the Eddystone Rocks. There's a bit of debate about whether Wynne Stanley chose to build the first Eddystone Lighthouse or was chosen to build the first Eddystone Lighthouse, and we will get back to that. Regardless, there's a certain sense to it. Sure, he wasn't a civil engineer, but there was also no such thing as a civil engineer up until Smeaton built the third Eddystone Lighthouse, so no chance of bagging one of those. There were also no offshore lighthouse builders because no one had ever built one before, and the idea of doing so was generally frowned upon as impossible. To construct the first Eddystone Lighthouse, then, naturally required a doer of impossible things, and on that score, there was no one with a CV like Henry Wynne Stanley, of the House of Wonders, the Mathematical Water Theater, the egg-laying clockwork duck. Still clerk of the works at Audley End, Wynne Stanley wasn't a very wealthy man, but his circuitous plan to change all that was now three-fifths complete. He had used his day job to finance the House of Wonders, which he used to finance the Mathematical Water Theater, which he used to finance the Eddystone Lighthouse, which, after it was complete, would give him a toll of one penny per ton from all ships that passed safely around it. Now, he just had to build the thing. Easy peasy. King William III provided one of the Admiralty's strongest guard ships, the Terrible from which Wynne Stanley and his 20-man crew could base their operations. Of course, since the entire reason a lighthouse needed to be built upon the rocks was because they weren't safe for ships to steer near, the Terrible's usefulness was somewhat hampered. Wynne Stanley and his team had to reach the building site by rowboat, which could only be done in the summer, and only when the sky was at its clearest and the water its most placid. If the weather took a turn while they were at work, then they were stuck on the rocks until it abated, which could take days, or in at least one event, weeks. Weeks, stranded on the slippery, wet, slanted and jagged rocks, buffeted at all times by sea spray which had a tendency to wash away the team's tools, food, and water. But if Henry Winstanley thought things couldn't get any worse, his usually vibrant imagination was failing him. Construction of the Eddystone Lighthouse began in earnest on July 15th, 1696, just a month and a half after the opening of the Mathematical Water Theater in Piccadilly. A year later, when Stanley, his men, and the Guardian ship the Terrible were about halfway done. But England was called to help Archduke Charles fight off the French in the War of Spanish Succession. So, in June of 1897, the Terrible left Win Stanley and his men alone on the rocks. 
On June 24th, a French privateer stumbled upon the in-progress lighthouse and promptly blew it to smithereens. The French stripped the workers naked and set them adrift in their longboats, but they had bigger plans for Henry Winstanley. He was shackled and brought to Brittany, where his captors demanded he build some of his fantastic contraptions for France. Winstanley refused, explaining he needed to get back and start building his lighthouse again. Cheeky, but lucky for Winstanley, King Louis XIV knew both about the man and his lighthouse. He chastised the privateers for taking the former and wrecking the latter, saying, France is at war with England, not with humanity. Winstanley was set free and immediately began afresh on the rocks. A year and a half later, the impossible Eddystone Lighthouse was complete, and on November 14, 1698, its light, composed of 60 candles and a hanging lamp, cut through the night for the first time. On the shores of Plymouth, the people could see it shine and celebrate it, toasting to Henry Winstanley, who wasn't there because the weather had stranded him back on the lighthouse for five more weeks. Though, once it was finished, Winstanley's lighthouse wasn't a bad place to be stranded, really. Nobody had ever built an offshore lighthouse before, least of all Henry Winstanley, so there was no standard for how it should look or behave. The goal of a lighthouse is to be avoided, which lends them to typically be drab and utilitarian. But of course, the guy who built a mechanical butler, a slipper-triggered ghost, and the most spectacular theatrical display in all the Western world wasn't going to make a bare and spartan tower, wherever it was. The first Eddystone lighthouse was built mostly of wood, affixed to the rocks by copper and iron. It was octagonal, painted mostly pink, aside from the open-air veranda at its midsection, which was a stately blue and white. There was a flagstaff jutting off one side of this mid-air gazebo, and ladders and stairways crisscrossed the tower both inside and out. Above the light, the tower was crowned by an intricate weather vane, 10 or 20 feet tall. The ironwork was done by Jean Tijoux, the finest artisan living in all Europe at the time. The wood was carved by Grinling Gibbons, the finest woodworker living in all Europe at the time. There were also original paintings by Louis Laguerre, one of the finest decorative and history painters of the era, who made his name painting the English defeating Louis XIV, who had just captured and saved Henry Winstanley's life. The paintings were on display in the State House, where Henry hoped King William would someday visit. Until then, he made his own bed there on his frequent trips to look after and improve the tower. Improvements proved much necessary. During its first winter, the lighthouse keepers complained that the tower was frequently totally covered by the waves, and its heavy, Jean Tijoux-crafted iron weather vane caused the whole structure to sway in high winds. In the spring of 1699, Winstanley enlarged, strengthened, and heightened his lighthouse to 120 feet tall, and probably removed the weather vane. Sorry, Jean. After that, Winstanley was content and confident in his lighthouse and sure of its lasting safety. He is reported to have even said that he wished to, quote, be in the lighthouse during the greatest storm that ever blew upon the face of the heavens. I very much doubt the validity of that quote, though, not least of which because it strikes me as too perfectly ironic to be true. On November 26, 1703, an extratropical cyclone devastated South and Central England. It was so powerful, so damaging, so stunning and unprecedented that it inspired Daniel Defoe to essentially invent modern journalism to chronicle it, which he did in his 1704 book, The Storm, 
or a collection of the most remarkable casualties and disasters which happened in the late dreadful tempest, both by sea and land. Wrote Defoe, no pen could describe it, nor tongue express it, nor thought conceive it, unless by one in the extremity of it. The great storm of 1703 tore off roofs from Plymouth to York. It toppled chimneys, swamped ships, and downed at least 4,000 oak trees in the new forest of southwest Hampshire alone. The lead roof of Westminster Abbey was, according to Defoe, rolled up like a roll of parchment and blown in some places clear off the building. In the low-lying Somerset levels, hundreds drowned in flooding. Defoe also details the collapse of more than 400 windmills, many of which, according to him, were set to spinning so hard by the 80-mile-per-hour winds that their wooden wheels ground until they caught fire. The English Navy was just done fighting for Charles II and back on its way to Britain when the storm hit, dragging hundreds of ships onto the Goodwin Sands off the coast of Kent, drowning at least a thousand English sailors. Plymouth particularly awoke the next day in ruins. Whole houses had collapsed, and those who survived stayed within them overnight because they feared the strength of the storm more than the weight of the wreckage. Barely a chimney was still to be found upright in the whole city. At some point, while surveying the damage, someone must have looked out from the Plymouth Hoe and noticed the other casualty. The Eddystone Lighthouse was gone, along with its five lighthouse keepers and Henry Wynne Stanley, who had been visiting to make some midsummer repairs. Not a trace of any of them or of the tower was ever seen again. It makes you wonder why bother? Why all this fuss by so many people over so many centuries? If you'd have asked that on that post-storm morning on the Plymouth Hoe, you wouldn't have had to wait long for the answer. The Eddystone Rocks sit right in the middle of the English Channel, smack dab in the shipping lanes used by almost any sailor who passed through. Under ideal conditions, the furthest jagged, shark-toothed stones jut just barely visibly out of the water. At high tide, or in big seas, they conceal themselves from even the most experienced of seamen. Over the centuries, thousands of ships wrecked upon the rocks. In the five years when Stanley's light had shone, not a single ship had. And then, two days after the storm blew him and his tower into the depths, a cargo ship called Winchelsea, inbound from Virginia, carrying a load of tobacco, dashed against the again lightless rocks. It was this precise hazard that had led to the creation of the first Eddystone Lighthouse. There's no doubt about that. But just why and how Henry Wynne Stanley ended up with the job is disputed. Allison Barnes thinks it was King William who made it happen. He'd recently created a new naval base at Devonport, west of Plymouth, and couldn't abide the threat to his ships. She thinks he initially reached out to Christopher Wren, the most famous of English architects and inventors of the era. But at the time, Wren was busy on his masterwork, restoring St. Paul's Cathedral after the Great Fire of 1666. So he recommended his friend, Henry Wynne Stanley. That's probably right. Barnes knows her stuff. But there is an alternative story, and it goes back at least as far as the mid-1800s, when it was put to poetry by Jean Inglow. She wrote a romantic poem about the heroism of our man called simply Wynne Stanley. It details the building of the tower pretty accurately and ends with a beautiful account of his demise after completing it. 
And the winds woke, and the storm broke, and wrecks came plunging in. None in the town that night lay down, or sleep or rest to win. The great mad waves were rolling graves, and each flung up its dead. The seething flow was white below, and black the sky overhead. And when the dawn, the dull gray dawn, broke on the trembling town, and men looked south to the harbor mouth, the lighthouse tower was down, down in the deep where he doth sleep, who made it shine afar, and then in the night that drowned its light, set with his pilot star. Many fair tombs in the glorious glooms at Westminster they show. The brave and the great lie there in state when Stanley lieth low. According to Inglo and several other sources besides, Henry Winstanley didn't get the order from King William, but gave it. He had invested money in three ships, and soon the first one, called Snowdrop, was lost to the rocks. That was a shame, but perhaps just the hazards of sailing. When the second ship was lost on the same rocks, however, he decided something must be done. And so he did. That ship's name? The Constant. Music for this episode by Blue Dot Sessions, Lee Rosevere, Kevin McLeod, Carlos Gardels, and Anime is Trash. Voice talent by the inimitable Heather Chrysler. Special thanks go out to all our Patreon subscribers, particularly Chicken Hawk, Timothy Birch, Chris Revelo, Twisted Cobalt, Aaron Denniston, Michael Paxson, and Mary Kay Vandevelt. Your support helps make this show possible. And if you would like to join them, go to patreon.com slash the constant and sign up. Or you can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Or tell a friend. Constantpodcast.com is the website where you can find our merchandise and social media presences. We are a proud part of Hub and Spoke Audio Collective, home to Culture Hustlers by Lucas Spivey, who recently interviewed Monica Miller on approaching identity in the arts and how to write a killer biography. Go check it out. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, where since 1893, the 66-foot-tall Chicago Harbor Lighthouse has protected the city until the Coast Guard finally recognized that the buildings around it are much, much taller and brighter and had it decommissioned in 2009, this has been The Constant. While Karl Marx was still writing fiction and reading Hegel, Rowbotham hitched his wagon to a farmer. While Karl Ma- While Karl Mar- mm-hmm. It's just, I don't know. The mouth part isn't working. While Karl- Karl-